The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we'll start by um, saying welcome. I'm Diana Clark, and this are my good friends, Ying Chen, Kim Allen, and David Laurie. They'll, they'll say a little bit about themselves in just a minute. I'll just say a few introductory remarks, and that is, um, this is a sati center event, and what that means primarily is that the dawn is um, handled a little bit differently for sati center than IMC. That is, sati center has like a one-basket system, that there isn't a difference between for the teacher and for the center. So if you'd like to donate, there's a single uh, slot back there, and we'll um, pass that on to the sati center and take care of it. Yes. Yes, and you can use the kiosk. We'll uh, have that work out. Yes, yes. And then the second thing I'll say about the Sati Center is that Sati Center is about, um, there's more of an emphasis on like education and study. And so there'll be, uh, that's what we'll be doing today, definitely this combination of study and practice. So not study exclusively, but um, just more of an emphasis on that. Then I think what we'll do right now is we'll just um, pass the microphone and we'll ask you guys to say your names and then we'll come back up here. Hi, um, my name is Lilu. I'm Matt. I'm Barbara Mayo. I'm Anne. I'm Linda. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Morgan. So now I'll invite my co-teachers here to say a little bit, like, how is it that the four of us are sitting up here? Who would like to start? Kim, who would like to start? Oh, David, you picked up the phone. <laughs> I have a live mic. Uh, okay. Um, I'll just say this, just that it's a pleasure to, to do this, to offer this, to share this. Um, and w- maybe we can work to make this a bit more of a circle as we, as we progress over these five weeks, um, beginning today. But I would just say that this is something we do. Over a period of time, the four of us have sort of come together around um, our interest in study and practice, and particularly the way that study of the discourses supports practice. I think each of us have found this a really rich avenue um, and haven't found study at all antithetical to practice, but very much the opposite, that the more we enter the ancient texts and return to them, the richer um, our practices, the stiller our practices. So that's my... Yeah, I think it's delightful to see people becoming interested in practice and study together and that it's, um, it's a unique opportunity really to have access to so many of these ancient texts that we do now and to be able to use them to inform our practice. In my own experience, I can say that I feel like I was contemplating and what would I say about these texts? I mean, they're in some ways these things from a completely different culture translated over time. And as I thought about that, I thought, actually, they're really my teachers in some way. I have 
always considered that I have many teachers, and I, I think I can fairly say that one of them is the discourses, as in terms of challenging me, in terms of uplifting me, um, and really changing the way that my practice unfolds. Well, those are things the teachers do also. So I would count these discourses among my teachers. And as I contemplate them also, just the fact of practice and study, I feel that that's another way that I feel connected to a long lineage. Yes, there's a lineage of the warm hand to warm hand, which is fundamental to passing the teachings. But um, I think about how to get these texts. This is an English text that was not originally in English. And it had to pass through lots and lots of hands of people writing these things and sharing them and teaching them to each other for over two millennia at this point. Well, maybe not quite that long, but close to that for the written text. So somehow in seeing them, I feel a lot of gratitude and a long lineage coming to me. Thank you. Yeah, so like uh, all of us, um, as I was reflecting kind of my relationship with uh, suttas, uh, it was almost 20 years ago when I first encountered uh, suttas in Chinese uh, translations and called agamas, and I'll explain that a little bit later in uh, today's uh, class as well. Uh, but the first uh, set of um, kind of the first kind of forces that came to me when I read the suttas was that of a cleansing. I felt that I, my heart is cleansed when I read the, the suttas. And they were very inspiring. And at the same time, it just felt like, it felt like it's clean, cleansing my, my whole body and, and my mind. And over time, that relationship has changed as I worked with the suttas, understand them more, practice more, um, and it can become um, sometimes help me understand um, certain aspects of the practice and and the understand the teaching. And other times, it really helps move the practice in a particular way. And so when you read the suttas, uh, it can be sometimes helpful to really use it to inform the practice. And so that's, you know, other relationships that I've been forming <laughs> with the sutta. So I'm just very delighted uh, to be able to share this in with the four different kinds of voices and maybe uh, have a, a presentation of a how the suttas can be used uh, to support us in our dharma path in different ways. So maybe I'll add that the four of us, we've been meeting every other week for quite some time. And we've been talking about different uh, Dharma books or Dharma uh, suttas. And wow, I love these meetings. So we, we do this over Zoom or so we're kind of like I'm... Sometimes they don't know. They might suspect, right? I have a regular shirt on top. I'm still in my pajamas on the bottom. I have a cup of coffee and... Uh, 
And we always, at the end of the time when we're talking together, we always end up talking about practice, even though we start talking about suttas, and we start talking about practice, and all of us are smiling, and there's this this sense of just this love and appreciation, both for the texts, and just how great it is to just talk with other people and to share things, share ideas and to explore. We don't always agree on everything. We don't need to. It's just fun to kind of not to like roll up our sleeves in some way and say, really, are you sure? I, I, I don't understand it that way. I think about this and it turns out to be just for me great fun and my heart always overflows when we end these uh, phone calls. So, well, that is an introduction. Um, or do you want to say something, David? Well, I just want to again invite people to to join us in this in this uh, you know in this practice. So you know we have this kind of formal uh, yeah. setup here, but feel free to move to a front row chair. We're going to be a small group. We want that. We wanted that. We we like this. We feel like this is a way of expanding this energy that we have as four. So please join us uh, as we kind of. Ex- explore uh, both these texts and, and what they tell us about practice. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, more people signed up, sent an email, but it's fine. It's, it's all good how this works. So each, uh, not every week or will unfold exactly the same. Depends on the topic that we're doing. This week, we're going to, maybe not surprisingly, it's the first week, and we're going to focus on the first part of the sutta and that is the setting the setting of the sutta most likely many of you have read this read the sutta if not that's okay so the setting is this right you can imagine thousands of years ago right in ancient India it's the end of the rains retreat the rains retreat is held um, not surprisingly, during the rainy season. And this was when the um, lay people, those who are support the monastics, had asked them to not be walking around so much because in the rain it was destroying their crops or it was just difficult. So during the rains, the monks would choose a place and stay there for three months. So this is the end of the rains retreat. The Buddha is going um, out to... Um, or what's happening during the rains retreat is that the senior monks are teaching the junior monks. So this is a community that are practicing together. None of them are um, leaving necessarily, but they're all supporting each other and practicing together. Then the Buddha goes out and he's... um, Let's see, what's the, um, the quote here? He says... Monks, I am content with this progress. My mind is content. So, arouse still more energy to attain the unattained, to achieve the unachieved, to realize the unrealized. I shall wait here at Savati for one more month. So, this isn't so common, actually, that we see this in the suttas where the Buddha is saying, like, wow, this is really good. I, I feel content. I feel happy with what's happening. But somehow he has this feeling that yet they could do more. They could do more. 
So it's the end of the rains retreat. So some people, some of the monastics are leaving and probably telling, oh, this is what just happened um, back when the Buddha was talking. So that monk tells two friends who tell two friends who tell two friends. And people out on the countryside then all come to where the, the Buddha is. They want to hear what he's going to say or maybe receive some instruction, some more instruction by the senior monks. So at the end of the fourth month now, the um, Buddha says to them, he, they all assemble and he says, this assembly is free from prattle. This assembly is free from chatter. I'm interpreting this as saying that it wasn't when the talking was happening, it was fruitful. The teaching that was happening was meaningful, that something important was happening. It wasn't just idle talk when the, this last month, uh, the preceding month when the, all the monks were together. And he says, this assembly consists purely of heartwood. Heartwood is the center of a tree that is really stable and is when you want to build a foundation, when you want to create something, you build something out of heartwood. There's a number of different suttas where the Buddha talks about this. Maybe as a little bit of an aside, I'll say I'm talking about monks here. It's shown that these are um, the masculine pronouns are used and there's monks. I don't know if there were nuns there. I do know that there is another sutta where the, um, the nuns are practicing together. And just like in this sutta, they are, what's the expression here? Let's see, they are um, achieving successive stages of high distinction. So we do have a suttas where it's just nuns and they're having this as well. I don't know whether there were nuns in this particular time, but just want to um, include that it's not just happening to monks here. So the, um, the Buddha praises them, and then he says that um, some of them have attainments. We won't go into the details of this now, but in Theravada Buddhism, there's four different levels of awakening, four different levels of attainments. And the Buddha is saying there's people in this assembly that have all of these four different levels of attainments. So indeed, they were. Uh, this the teaching was successful. The teaching was fruitful. And not only does he state that people have different attainments in the sutta, but also that they're doing different practices. I find this meaningful. It's not that everybody's doing exactly the same thing. We see this in a number of different suttas where there's a, um, different teachings that are given to different individuals. So the assumption I'm having is that the senior monks are noticing with the junior monks their temperaments, where they are in their practice, what's helpful, and is giving them guidance, specific guidance. So the Buddha says, well, there's people that are practicing... Each of the, I'll use this expression, seven sets. There's these um, seven sets of practices. We won't go into the details about them today. I'll just list them briefly. It's a list of lists. Four foundations of mindfulness, four right strivings, four 
Roads to Spiritual Power, Five Faculties, Five Powers, Seven Factors of Awakening, Eightfold Path. In here, it's a total of 37 different elements. And in different suttas, we see the, the Buddha saying, you know, these are the ways to practice for awakening. So people are doing all, all of those different ones. Plus, there's some who are practicing with the Brahma Viharas. Some are doing meditation on foulness. And some that are doing meditation on mindfulness of breathing, which is the topic of this sutta. And then he says, bhikkhus, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. Hence, creating the setting for this sutta. And then David will tell us a little bit more about what we know about Anapanasati and the, and the Buddha practicing this. When we, when we discussed which sutta to begin with, because our idea, if this is successful, meaning if this group in here, this group of practitioners, if not monks and nuns, enjoys this, finds it of benefit, that we might continue this with other things. We thought, where should we start? This is the obvious place, one of a few um, obvious places that we might begin. One of the classic um, practices that, that, uh, you know, that informs our um, most, most of all practice in our, uh, in our lineage. And I sort of thought it would be useful to just say a couple things from other places that we have from the ancient texts about what the Buddha said, or what we take the Buddha have said and meant about mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the in and out breath. And um, in, a, um, in another sutta in the Samyutta uh, Nikaya, um, the Buddha says, or the Buddha is quoted as saying, practitioners, bhikkhus, monks, uh, this immersion in mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is peaceful and sublime, an ambrosial, pleasant dwelling, and disperses and quells right on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise. And then in one of the beautiful similes that we sometimes find in the text, it says, just as practitioners in the last month of summer when the dust and dirt is stirred up, a large sudden storm disperses and settles it on the spot. In the same way, when this immersion in mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it's peaceful, peaceful and salime, a deliciously pleasant meditation, and it disperses and settles unskillful qualities on the spot wherever and whenever they arise. Not only does he characterize the practice, but also those who practice it in another um, place in the text. It's said that one who has gradually practiced developed and brought to perfection mindfulness of the in and out breath as taught by the Buddha illuminates the entire world like the moon when freed from clouds. The Buddha talked about his reliance on this practice and centrality of this practice to his own um, experience, both before his awakening and, and after his awakening. Before, before his awakening, he says, I too, monks, before my awakening, I always love this phrase, when I was just an unawakened bodhisattva, I frequently maintained this abiding, this practice of mindfulness of breathing. 
When I did uh, abide in this practice, neither my body was fatigued, nor were my eyes, my mind, and through lack of clinging, uh, I was released from suffering. It's interesting that after his meditate, after his enlightenment, the Buddha continued this practice. This isn't a practice just for um, the path leading toward something called awakening that we have referred to as awakening, but something in which awakening is is there and and something that constitutes um, um, a practice that even awakened ones can practice with benefit. And he says. After another rain's retreat, he's asked, um, what were you doing all afternoon, essentially? And he uh, responds, Monks, if wanderers from other sects or anyone should ask you, by means of what dwelling friends did Gotama, the contemplative, mostly dwell in during this rain's residence, you thus asked should answer them in this way. It was by means of immersion in mindfulness of breathing that the Blessed One mostly dwelled. So both before... uh, and after awakening, the Buddha practices this practice that we are going to explore in these coming weeks. Well, with that, we thought we would try some practice. So we'll have a guided meditation now to begin to connect with the experience of the mindfulness of breathing Of course, we'll be doing these in more detail each session. So uh, accordingly, we'll start mostly with the preliminaries to the mindfulness of breathing as well as connecting with our own breath. So finding a posture that's upright and also relaxed, settling into something that feels like you'll be able to sit relatively still for 20 minutes or so. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes and begin to bring your attention inward. And beginning by feeling the place where we're sitting. So the seat against the chair, feet against the floor. Just sensing that stable foundation on which you're sitting. Really feeling that contact. Maybe even relaxing a bit into that, those surfaces that you're touching. Sometimes I think about my body melting slightly into the chair or the floor and really feeling connected and stable, so allowing yourself to be supported. We may take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths to just get started. And then on the exhale, just releasing any obvious tension from the body that's easily let go of. Rising up from the stable base that we're sitting on is the body with the 
spine in the middle. It floats upward or is released upward in the same way that a sea plant is anchored on the floor, but it floats upward into the water. And the arms float like the fronds of the plant and the head can float on the spine. Just sensing in this straightness that we are uplifted without any strain. It can help also to bring some conscious ease to parts of the body where we often hold tension. So softening the expression on the face by softening the muscles around the forehead, around the eyes, around the mouth. Just allowing the face to be soft. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Releasing the jaw. Down through the throat and the shoulders. We may imagine the shoulder blades sliding down the back a bit. So as we relax the shoulders, it's not so much that they're rolling forward as even settling back slightly. This is a more balanced posture for the upper back. Softening the arms and the hands. And down through the chest area and into the belly, an area where we may feel the breath. Again, using the out-breath as a means of softening, relaxing. Inviting ease through the body. And even down into the hips and the legs, all the way to the ankles and the feet, releasing any bracing that we may have in the lower body so that overall we've invited ourselves to sit at ease. As we feel more stillness coming to the body, It may be then that the sensations of breathing become some of the most prominent sensations in the body. We may begin to open to the sensations of breathing 
as actual elemental simple sensations not really as the idea of breathing but for example the the touch of the air on the nostrils or the upper lip and then some coolness as it enters into the nasal passages we may feel the breath moving through the back of the nose and into the throat and a feeling of on the in breath some expansion in the chest area, maybe a shift of clothing against the skin. So many different kinds of sensations. And then on the out-breath, a feeling of relaxation or a falling sensation in the belly as it relaxes back different kind of movement, maybe it's warmer in the nose. So just connecting with this kaleidoscope of sensations through the body, just as it is. It doesn't need to be a long breath, a short breath, a relaxed breath, a full breath, it's all just how the breath is now. And we just notice that. And we intend to stay connected to how the breath is, these simple sensations with relaxed, open mindfulness. So a sense of alertness, of some interest, of a gentle touch with the mind. So establishing a a simple and peaceful relationship with our in and out breathing.
And if we find the breath escaping attention, the mind wandering away, it's no problem. As soon as we've realized that, we just immediately reconnect with the breath right there in the present. And begin again. And as things naturally change throughout the course of a sitting, we may periodically check if the body is still at ease, if any tension has crept in. One way to connect this with breath meditation is to aim that on the in-breath we will not introduce any new tension into the body and on the out-breath we'll release anything that can be released. So not introducing any new tension and letting go of any tension that could be released. sit in peace with the in and out breath as it is.
So I want to take a moment now to uh, look at some of the text in the sutta. If you have your copy, you may want to follow along, although it's not absolutely necessary. So Diana started us off very nicely by establishing the setting, the setting of this um, instruction and how there were these people practicing together and they'd been practicing very well and they were doing all these different things. And then among them, the Buddha highlights, among all the practices being done, he highlights the mindfulness of breathing. And then that's the setup for him to give a teaching about how to do mindfulness of breathing. And so there's a... If you have the Bhikkhu Bodhi numbered version, um, in paragraph 16, it says, And how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit? And this is kind of code for he's about to give the instructions, right? How is this done? And so um, the very next sentence the instructions begin. It doesn't begin farther down where he talks about what you do when you're actually sitting. It starts right away with what we could call the, these preliminaries, which is some of what we just did. So he says first, here a bhikkhu or a practitioner gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut. So right there, we already have some information about what this practice entails. And it's the suggestion is for some kind of physical seclusion. So, you know, maybe we don't have to literally go into the forest. Maybe that's not possible where we live. But we may have our particular meditation place or our room or a spot in the garden where we usually go. And so there's an indication that this practice is intended to be done somewhat in seclusion. Um, That's not to say that you can't be aware of your breath in other times. Like I found it to be interesting to do mindfulness of breathing during meetings, (laughs) but um, you know that's that's a little outside of what these instructions say literally. So this is a, a practice to be done in seclusion, and then it goes on. Having done these things, the monk sits down, having folded his legs crosswise and set his body erect. So this says something about the posture that we're in. So already, though, we have a a case where when we read the suttas, we have to ask ourselves, how literal is this? You know, what if my body doesn't allow me to sit in the crosswise folded posture? Does that mean I can't practice mindfulness of breathing? Well, probably this is a case where we don't need to take it exactly literally. But if you're doing study and practice, questions like this come up. How literal is this instruction? How exact is it? To what degree can I modify something because it's more convenient for me or because it makes more sense for me in my Western life to do it that way? Often there's latitude and the spirit of the instructions is what we're maintaining, but it's at least nice to be conscious about that and to know when it is that we've modified something that it says. So I don't uh, adhere to this having to be literal. I think all of you sitting in chairs look just great. (laughs) And that it could even be done lying down, it could be done, you know, whatever posture. I think the idea of the posture is that we have some intentionality to our posture, setting the body erect. Well, even if you're lying down, you could um, 
establish something of a meditative posture with that intention. So I think that's maybe what's being implied here. That's how I would interpret it. And then it says, established mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful, I'll change the gender, ever mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. So we have then the instruction of how to dispose the mind in addition to how to dispose the body. And this phrase, um, having established mindfulness in front, appears also in the Satipatthana Sutta and actually in, in a number of other suttas. Sometimes people interpret that literally to say that you should have mindfulness established you know, around your nose and mouth, um, you know, in the front is the actual word is parimukang, where that means around the mouth, literally. But my guess is that this is not what it means, because there are other suttas that use that same word, parimukang, and it has nothing to do with the breath or the face or anything. So probably that was a some kind of an idiom at the time that didn't mean literally around the mouth. So, establishing mindfulness, though, that we also have from the Satipatthana Sutta, MN10, the other, the main instructions on how to cultivate mindfulness. And that has to do with uh, making our mind ardent, alert, and having put aside covetousness and grief for the world. So there's a degree of mental seclusion along with the physical seclusion that's being described and the intention is that we've decided that we're going to do this meditation, and so we're not going to think about what's happening tomorrow or um, allow our mind to go into other meditations or allow ourselves to get upset about things, even the fact that I can't connect to my breath, I'll get upset about that. You know, these kinds of things is that we, we decide that we're going to have a balanced mind, a simple presence, as we may know from other mindfulness practices. The reason I'm going over this in some detail is that this is a little paragraph that's easy to sort of skip over and just say, okay, sit down, whatever, and then... um, But I think the intention in study and practice is to really look at what the instruction says. And even these small phrases can, um, when they're gone over slowly and considered, what would this actually mean when I sit down to meditate, can bring new insights, can also really sharpen up the way the meditation goes. For a while I ignored these preliminary instructions in my practice. I just wanted to sit down and I just wanted to do whatever I was supposed to do with my mind when I was meditating. And I've now learned that it's actually really useful for me, since my mind can be a thinking kind of mind, is to sit down and to actually spend a moment, for example, knowing that I'm sitting. Because, you know, I've been doing these other things and I come down and sit down Realizing, yes, and now I'm sitting, now I'm meditating. So being aware that I'm sitting and then actually taking a moment to straighten my spine and pay attention to the straightness of the body, having set it erect. And then to establish that the mind is mindful. And maybe even to notice, oh, this is what mindfulness feels like in my mind. So these very simple preliminaries can go a long way. All right. Ying. So now I'll, can you hear me? You're okay?
Can you move Maybe move it a little closer. Is that Maybe better? If it's on the other side. On the other side. <laughs> See? This feels closer. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, so I'm going to segue a little bit um, to tell you a little bit about a Chinese translation. Uh, it's called Agamas. And as a way to kind of just help us understand how we might uh, study this kind of suttas um, uh, through different translations and how we relate to uh, the teachings that are offered in English translation, and um, maybe in, in any translation, and it's kind of, kind of open up a little bit. And so, um, as uh, um, Kim and uh, Diana uh, talked, uh, the the earlier part of the Susutta. Uh, maybe what I'll I'll do is to kind of back uh, back up a little bit uh, to tell you uh, how uh, the Chinese translation came about, just so you know a little bit about the different collections, and then kind of use this uh, this particular sutta to help you understand some differences that you might see, and that I know there are now. Uh, other translations in uh, Spanish and and for suttas as well, and so um, as we understand, it's a still evolving understanding uh, that uh, when the uh, teachings, the Buddha's teachings, uh, gets um, passed around, <laughs> and the the different regions um, uh, when. Uh, uh, when the uh, suttas are collected, the um, suttas that passed uh, to the south uh, east part of um, the country um, has this Pali collection, and they're called Pali canons, and they are very much found in Sri Lanka, uh, Burma, uh, Thailand. Um, and maybe uh, missing countries <laughs> over in uh, that part, and then the um, uh, the spread over through the north and the uh, Silk Road and, and, to, and Nepal and, and China and is based off. Uh, a lot of it is based off uh, Sanskrit uh, translation. It's a language that's that's very close to um, Pali, but it is a different. Uh, somewhat a different language, and uh, the uh, uh, Chinese translation, um, the equivalent of Pali Canon, is called Chinese Agamas, and Agamas kind of means collections or lumps of <laughs> things uh, accumulated together, and. Um, we don't know exactly how all of these collections are formed, um, but oftentimes the suttas that we, fa- we find in Pali canons may have parallels in uh, the Chinese agamas, but they don't always have exact the match. And sometimes they're missing, and sometimes they are in the Chinese agamas, but they're not necessarily in the Pali canon. And so those can be uh, potentially informative, of, um, but you know we we don't really know 
And so this is kind of where, over time, when I started lo-、uh, reading the suttas in different、uh, versions, it really opened me up a bit to kind of、um, opened my perspective a bit in how we, how, I, how I relate to the teachings in the sutta. Now, in this particular one, Anapanasati,、um, there is no、um, exact exact parallel、uh, in the middle length discourses, which is a Majjhimanikaya, which is one of the the main collections in Pali Canon, and it is not in the middle length、uh, collections. But there are three separate suttas in、uh, Samyutta Akama, which is the the, the shorter. Discourse collection, and that kind of composed together that have somewhat of a parallel to、uh, this sutta,、uh, Anapanasati. So the main teachings on the mindfulness of breathing is present in、um, kind of full length and the sixteen steps in one of the the suttas, but the preliminaries is in a separate sutta. It doesn't explain the details of the mindfulness of breathing. It's just, you know, really kind of one line <laughs> talking about. Now I'm teaching mindfulness of breathing, but that's pretty much <laughs> it. <laughs> but the preliminary is very similar to、uh, what we have just talked about、uh, earlier, and so、um, for me and. You know, this kind of give me some sense of how this、um, su- how how I might relate to this suttas, and whether、uh, it's a composition of、uh, what the Buddha had taught in different times,、um, or whether it's in one setting.、Um, we may not know completely. We have to know what helps supports us in our practice at this moment. And use the elements of the suttas that supports us to move us along in the path, on the path. And so that's kind of how、uh, how I relate to、uh, reading the suttas. And in the、uh, preliminary portion,、um, it is also interesting to、uh, to see that、um, some of the Uh, there, are, there are some differences between, for example,、uh, when、uh, Buddha de- described, you know, in this assembly,、um, there are people who practices Brahma Viharas, and、uh, what Diana talked about the thirty-seven、uh, wings of awakening, and、um, Perception of impermanence, mindfulness of breathing, and all these different aspects of it. But in the Chinese parallel,、um, there is no thirty-seven wings of awakening. It only had Brahma Viharas, and it had、um, practice of certain, certain supernatural power practices, kind of concentration practices. And contemplation of impurity, and other forms of practices.、Um, so it's kind of interesting、uh, <laughs> for me to see some of the differences、uh, in the sutta. So I'm going to pause、um, at the, this moment and just、uh, give you some perspectives on how we look at kind of di- different translations of the sutta.
Okay, so now we're going to allow you guys to do some talking and some exploration. So we're going to ask you to get into some small groups, um, probably two groups of four and a group of three. And we'll... um, And then why don't you do that, and then I'll give you the instructions what to do after you get into the groups. Or, David? Oh, there's ten. Did I miscount? That's what I meant, three, three, four. Let's do that. Did I say two, four, three? Yeah, or whatever, whatever. But three, three, four. I have to know, uh, it's hard for me to do math when I'm sitting in front of a room. It's true. There's something about that with a microphone and stuff. Something like that. Okay. Not yet, not yet. So then, um, so here's the question. Something that you can explore. And one person can say... um, their response to the question doesn't have to be everything you know about the topic. And then it can go to the next person. They can say something. And then it goes to the third person. They can say something. And then it comes back around to the first person who may be influenced by what they heard or maybe um, have some new ideas or something else to say. So here's the question. What motivation, what inspiration, what reason... Do you have for combining study and practice? This can be a combination of what what experiences have you had about it, it, um, it being in the past, what experiences you've had and you're expecting to have those types of before, or maybe what you'd like to have, or there's a room here for some interpretation. But what motivation, what reason, what inspiration? do you have for combining sutta study with meditation practice? And the person who is sitting closest to the big glass uh, wall starts, and then you just say a little bit, and then you can go to the second person, the third person, and then we'll go around into circles. Thanks. Okay, so here's the second question. What, what, if anything, did you learn about this discussion of the preliminaries? Did it uh, provoke some questions? Like, wow, what was that like in ancient India for people to come together and practice? Or, hmm, maybe I never really thought too much about putting mindfulness in the front, what it means. Or, I don't know, whatever your response might be, some ideas you have. What was it like to hear about the preliminaries practice for mindfulness of breathing? And you can just, whoever the next person or whoever got cut off by my ringing the bell or um, can go next. Thanks. So we'd like to invite people to bring conversation to a close. That was brief. As we go forward in these five weeks, we may have a little bit more time for things that we're kind of compressing into today's. But why don't we rejoin the circle and then I'm going to pass the microphone around and ask somebody from each of these groups to um, say something about what came up as you as you talked.
cold weather, isn't it? <laughs> okay. It's usually Dan's job. Was there a question? <laughs> yeah, we just like to hear back, you know, from uh, your sharing and and if you have any questions, feel free to bring that up as well. But um, oh, we had a, a number of viewpoints from our um, group. And yeah, you may want to speak a little louder. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Um, and so we had a number of, of different uh, viewpoints for the first um, question, and I thought the most fascinating one, <laughs> no offense, was about escape velocity. So why don't I pass this back? <laughs> um, we did not plan this. Um, the way that I was describing the um, preliminaries and also the teachings was by describing um, the world and karma as kind of gravity and culture as gravity. And it kind of is pushing you or pulling you and it's, it's all this weight and um, it has a momentum. And then meditation being kind of floating on top of the atmosphere. But it's difficult to go from gravity to floating without gravity and the teachings are um, I was describing it as um, as a rocket for a rocket to leave Earth's gravity it needs escape velocity and escape velocity it needs this fuel which the suttas can be and the more repetition and the more um, so it's almost like the preliminaries are conditions because it can be hard to jump from being in the world and being completely mindful and free. And so, yeah, so it's like a kind of... The suttas are the rocket, and the more you study them, the easier it is to have this escape velocity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's that's fascinating, yes. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. You're absolutely right, and especially for the susutta, the preliminaries are itself a set of conditions, and then the following on instructions are, you know, cultivating more (laughs) of the conditions. Yeah, yeah. Any other uh, groups or individuals? I'm not sure I can follow that thought, but um, I would say there's a lot of commonality between the three of us um, in terms of appreciating both the teachings and the practice. Um, And a sense of inquiry, I think that was something I was hearing from from all of us, broader or otherwise. We didn't get to escape velocity, but, <laughs> um, you know, the, um, Barbara has experience in a lot of traditions, they both do, so that was interesting. Mm. And, um, you know, I didn't 
say it in the group, but my experience in Christianity, um, it just wasn't anywhere near as satisfying in terms of mining the Bible, in my experience. Well, I really enjoyed um, getting to know Amy and Ed a little bit, and um, just uh, a lot of joy in hearing um, like commonalities and sort of wanting to integrate theory and practice or practice and study. Um, and I think Amy said she was on a retreat of, um, recently on the study um, of texts and how great and different that was, and. Um, yeah, just lovely to hear hear from everyone and share. Yeah. So are there any questions uh, up to this point? Uh, you know, e- either on the material that we presented for the, uh, the sutta itself or about the sutta uh, in general, sutta studies in general. Um, yeah, so we have a question over here. If you, we can pass the mic. Um, one of the things that came up in our group is uh, the emphasis on posture and it seems and I'm actually curious about the Agama's perception of posture because it seems there's different emphasis in different kinds of Buddhism and uh, and if that's a preliminary, like if that's the big ingredient on the escape you mean the translation, uh, or just in general the Chinese? Um, uh, whether like the zazen position, whether it's yeah. sitting. One of the speculation was maybe there was not enough chairs for the monks in Buddha's <laughs> times, so ah. they had to. <laughs> I see. Okay. Uh, for this particular sutta, uh, and in general in the Chinese agamas in the early uh, teachings. Uh, the posture is very similar to what is being emphasized in the Pali Canon as well. It's oftentimes the sitting upright. You know, that, that's a, a very common word uh, in terms of the translation. Now, um, in the later on, the Chinese, uh, um, you know, more evolved, uh, or um, as the the Buddhism evolves in China. Uh, there may be some changes in terms of how we hold uh, rituals and how we hold the postures. Um, but in terms of the uh, early Buddhism, and the translations still have a quite a strong emphasis in terms of having upright posture. Yeah. I wonder if you can give me an overview of the suttas, like how many there are, what are the core ones, and is it just for Theravada that you're talking about, or in the entire Buddhism? How how many are there? Diana? You know, I don't know the exact answer. I think it's more than uh, 10,000, but some are one paragraph or just a few lines. 
So this uh, Anapanasati comes from the middle length discourses. Not surprising, they are the middle length. There's long length ones, which are much longer, which are these big epic narratives about things that are happening. And then there's two collections of really short some of them are just a few lines. And those two collections of really short are organized either by a number. You know how Buddhism loves lists, right? So there's like a chapter. Everything that has four of stuff is in the fourth chapter. Everything that has five of something is in the fifth chapter. Or they're organized um, according to a topic. Everything that's, um, I shouldn't say everything, but all the suttas are organized around a particular practitioner around, um, there's a, um, gosh, there's so many, I just, um, yeah, yeah, it escapes my, uh, thank you, (laughs) vain enough feelings, there's a a Satipatthana collection or something like this, so we say this giant number, but um, not all of them are the same length, but if we want to compare it to a Bible, I would say that, um, for me, I have a collection of most of them, not all of them, and it's an English translation. I don't know, it's maybe three feet on my bookshelf or two and a half feet or something like this. Uh, so just to give you a sense, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, in, in a series lasting for the next decade. And I was just going to say, you didn't mention the. there's another collection that's called the Collection of Short Pieces, ironically the longest of all of them, that includes the Dhammapada and some of the early, the Sutta Nipata and some of the earliest texts. We have a lot of verse texts and the like. But yeah, it's an extensive collection. <clears throat> I was curious... Um I actually enjoyed reading the opening. I feel like um, I've heard parts of this in Dharma talks, but it's always excerpted. excerpted so I like ha- it's nice to read it from the start. And um, I noticed that there's a lot of about the full moon that that there in the beginning it's the full moon, and then he says, and then the next full or the the full, the full moon. So is it sort of common in these um, texts to have? a lot of references to what time of the phase of the moon, or is it common to give Dharma talks on the full moon? Or, you know, could you say something about that? I'll say a few words, uh, uh, that, a few words that I'm aware of. Uh, I haven't done any studies on it, so. But um, it is true that in Indian traditions, uh, especially whether it's a Hindu or many uh, different traditions in India, uh, full moon cycles have quite significance both energetically and kind of spiritually. Um, so many traditions, even outside of Buddhism, have uh, rituals and chants on the full moon day. And in the yogic tradition, it is said that the planet is somehow evolved in a certain way, there is energetic uh, components as well uh, that supports the spiritual development. And, and so, you know, Buddha thousands of years ago and kind of, you know, relate to some of that tradition too. And so that there may be some influencing that. But we don't, I don't know for sure. And David have something to say as well? 
very briefly and probably before we, we move to close. Um, just that moonlight also plays a really important role as a simile, as it did in this, this quote that I read, that the in and out uh, meditation illuminates the entire world like the moon freed from the clouds. So moonlight and the freeing of the moon's light from clouds turns up in some... This is a very early text uh, that I quoted from, but it's also there in Japanese Zen teachings, mood watching. Um, so there's that too. That's not just you know, tropical uh, cultures, but much, much of, much of the world, maybe before the present era, the moon plays this role. The Chinese too, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when you read that. I would expect it to be the sun, and you said the moon, I was kind of surprised. Isn't Buddha's birthday the full moon in May? I'll just say one tiny thing, that um, scholars are, uh, by what's written, are assuming that unlike we have more of a focus on the sun and the month and by day to day, um, in the time of the Buddha, it was much more about the moon. So a full moon was like the beginning of the month. So if we're going to say, um, we're going to meet a month from now, we would say, they would have said, oh, we'll meet you know, the next full moon. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that it still happens today that the um, Buddhist monastics do meet on the full moon and the half moon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and there are various lay practices that have evolved also. I think they, yeah, this, sometimes you'll see the word uposata, which is the full moon observance for lay people when they take on more precepts than they would normally do and maybe visit the monastery. And so there's also some religious aspects organized around for the reasons that Ying said. Okay, well, we're coming near the end of our time, and uh, we do have some homework for you, but before that, (laughs) I just want to kind of tie up uh, what we've done and transition toward the the rest of the course, in that... um, if you're looking at the text in, in paragraph 15, there's this part about mindfulness of breathing being of great fruit and great benefit. So we're then encouraged to uh, to want to take on these practices. And so there are these um, particular practices given over the paragraphs 18 and 19, and that's what we'll do in the next couple of classes. And then the reason that this is of great fruit and benefit is also in paragraph 15 where it says when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. Well, those are the satipatthanas. And when those are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven enlightenment factors, which is yet another important list. And when those factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance, which is another one of these sutta phrases, which means a full awakening. And so we have here uh, the way that this teaching is relating to the larger structure of the Buddhist teachings that are organized around the cultivation of the mind in certain directions. And this tells which ones mindfulness of breathing is related to. And that's how we're going to go through the, the study of this sutta. All right. Okay, and then I'll say a few words. I invite you to kind of be creative using... And this uh, uh, sutta uh, 
instructions in your day in your uh, meditate meditation practice or daily practice you know we uh, didn't really um, uh, read all the instructions in terms of the mindfulness of breathing um, but one of the things over time for me realized was these instructions can be used as guided meditation and so I actually had a recording myself <laughs> and used the recording for me, for myself, as guided meditation. And so I would invite you to kind of have, uh, come up with creative ways to engage with the text, uh, whether it's reading it out loud and, or reading it slowly. Or some people memorize it. And maybe in the sitting, the words might pop up in you. And then the next uh, two classes will be doing the first, uh, second, and third, fourth tetras will be the first and second next. And so if it's not too much, you could try memorizing uh, just a few instructions and see how that guides you in your meditation. And so be creative about how you might use the um, use the words for you. Where is this recording going to be? Is it accessible for the public, this particular recording we're taking today? Yeah, so the question was, are we going to post this? Yeah. The four of us, we hadn't, uh, we hadn't explicitly talked about it, but I think so, yeah. yeah. So we'll um, post this, and then we'll put them in an album and tie them all together, too, in a series, so you can find them. Yeah. There's one more question. Yeah, however you feel like. Yeah, so for me... Yeah, so I'll repeat the question. And so uh, in terms of recording uh, for your own meditation, you know, whether you want to put some spaces in between uh, the first and second tetrads, I would say put a space in between wherever you feel like. You know, sometimes I just drop one line, one instruction, sit for a while, drop another line, uh, sit for a while, and so it doesn't have to be just uh, between tetras only. Yeah. Okay. I think that's all I... Yeah, any final count comments? So is that the homework that you're Yes, that's the homework. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, should we give them the section numbers for the tetrads? I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Since you don't have a text and I, you have the mic. So in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, <coughs> the first tetrad is found in paragraph 18, and the second in 19, the third in 20, and the fourth. Okay, so the first line says, breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. That's 18. The next tetrad begins, the practitioner in this translation, he trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing rapture 
other translations may have bliss um, or joy. The third, the third tetrad begins, I shall breathe in experiencing the mind. And the fourth tetrad begins, I shall breathe in contemplating or experiencing impermanence. And that's how you can tell them if you don't have Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, paragraphs. They're, they're, they're four quite distinct, and as we'll talk about, they map to different realms of experience, to the Satipatthana, to the seven factors, in ways that are really fascinating and uh, inspiring. Can you say those again, David, please? Yes, the first tetrad begins, um, training, I breathe in long. The second one is breathing in, experiencing rapture or bliss, or joy, depending on the translation. The third one, I breathe in experiencing the mind, breathe out experiencing the mind. And the fourth one, I breathe in contemplating impermanence, breathe out contemplating impermanence. So it's past three, we want to let you go. Um, but we we will, this time and the coming times, we'll be around for a few minutes. We understand there's a lot of stuff that we're bringing up, and we are happy to, in fact, happy to talk all day usually, but <laughs> happy to answer a few questions uh, if there's other things that we weren't able to get to today. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing everybody next week. Yeah. Till then, take care. <laughs>